Well, hi there. My name's Rich Conwisher. I'm your senior pastor. It's good to see you. Hope that you have been well. Hope that you are doing well. You need to understand that one of the most important spiritual disciplines for somebody who preaches on a regular basis is to shut up, is to be quiet, is to be silent and to be still. And I thank you for the privilege that it is for the combination of steady leave and vacation where I get to the go to the garden of God's word and spend time not where I'm immediately thinking about what I'm gonna preach next, but to go deep and to listen to that still small voice that is God still alive in his spirit, whispering and pouring into our souls. So I'm glad to be with you, I'm excited, and after having the lid on Rich Conwisher for a while, I'm about to explode. I am so ready to be back in gear and doing what we're doing again. And so if you will, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter one, and let me calibrate that we're in the New Testament. You made it. I ran into one elder who's been faithfully doing the quest journey and he's like, I am so done with the prophets and I am so ready for Jesus. Um, all of this time that we've been working through the Old Testament and understanding the backdrop of the culmination of what God is going to do in his promises in and through Jesus. And in our quest journey, I've been walking through all of those different dimensions of the Old Testament of promise and freedom and home and kingdom and division and exile and return. All of those are extremely important. You will never understand your New Testament unless you understand these things about the Old Covenant and promise. And in the New Testament, we have these different moves of ministry, Messiah, mission, and the final gift of making all things new. And we want you, if you're in the sanctuary with us, whether you're watching online, we want you to join us for the New Testament. Maybe you've kind of fallen off the bandwagon, you started with Quest, and you're like, eh. okay, it's New Testament time. Everybody bring your Bibles back to church. Everybody open your Bibles back up and join us for the reading this week. And I think the podcast reader this week is particularly adept at reading. That's me. And then, so I think you want to join us, follow along. Um, we've got Bibles available in the back for you. And one of the other ways that we want to equip you is that we are going to do this thing called Walk Through the Bible. This has been going on for decades as a tool that they have continued to refine. I'm going to be there. I hope you'll be there too. It is a chance. Have you ever like read lots of parts of the Bible and you just can't seem to hold it all together in your head? What Walk Through the Bible does is gives you a fun and interactive way of kind of holding all of the framework of the Bible together so that when you open your Bible, you remember where you are, what's happening, why it's there, and so forth. So I encourage you to sign up for that. And I am incredibly excited to tell you that this fall we've got a great new opportunity for you in ministry through the Peachtree family. It's called the Honor Academy. We are doing this in recognition of the family that founded originally Peachtree. Peachtree started in a classroom for the first 10 years. We're taking Peachtree back 
to the classroom. One of the most consistent refrains that I hear is that people don't feel equipped and trained for the life of faith. And we've got all different kinds of learning and training environments for you to be able to grow in your faith, to gather around a meal on Sunday night. And so I hope you'll go and you'll check that out and you'll sign up for an opportunity to learn and grow on Sunday evenings. Seriously, do you think that watching more professional football is gonna make your life better? How about spending some time at church? So Mark chapter one, as we dive in, starts like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's say this together, it's on the screen, it's in your Bibles, let's say it in unison. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning, the geneseo, the word where we get genesis. Of the good news, that's the word gospel. It is the word announcement about Jesus, which is Joshua in the Greek form, and of Jesus being this Messiah, this Christos, this anointed one who is God's representative, God's own son here on earth. I remember when I was uh, going to my orientation day for seminary, and where I went to seminary, they were pretty old school that they still believed in the Socratic method that that you could be in a class of 150 people, because there were about 150 people in each of our different kind of main classes, like Old Testament 101 and Greek 101 and all of these things, and, and, and that you could be called on in front of 150 people to stand up and give a basic answer, that you could be tested in, in this way. And they wanted to, in the orientation, to prepare us for this methodology of education because many people have gone to schools where you just didn't do that. You just kind of passively sat there and received the information. And so in order to kind of ease their way into it, the professor who was introducing this at the front said, for example, let me ask you a question. How many gospels are there? And he pointed to a man who was not that far away from me, who I just met a few moments ago, who lived on my floor, who was from Africa. And he called on the man and the man stood up and he looked right at the professor, all 150 heads turned and he says, sir, there is but one gospel, but there are four evangelists, maybe five if you include Paul. And it was a drop the mic moment because that was not the answer that the professor was looking for. My friends, there are four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there's one gospel. There's one announcement. There's one prophet and priest and king and his name is Jesus. And what this means is that after all of the longing and the exile and the brokenness and the fracture and the oblivion, the hundreds of years of silence, this anointed one came into the moment of history and he came to rescue us. And so let's see what this rescue looks like in action. Flip ahead in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to start reading at the first verse. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat that the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. May God amaze us once again and help us with fresh eyes to see what we have never seen before. As we dip our toes into the New Testament, you need to understand that you will never understand the New Testament. You will never understand Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John if you see them just as a collection of stories. They are not just lesson after lesson or story and encounter next to another story or encounter. You will only understand what you are reading if you see them for what they really are as a series of conflicts, of confrontations, as a series of collisions. For you see, even some of the greatest stories and and moments that we can think of, think of the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in response to someone who wants to justify himself and says sarcastically, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in response to people criticizing him because they think that he is cavorting with the wrong kind of people. People, uh, Jesus reveals the, the great commandment because, because somebody wants to test and see if they can pick apart what Jesus really thinks or believes. Almost every little moment in the New Testament is a moment of conflict and collision. Just in this section that we're reading here, like in Mark chapter two, I wanna show you up on the screen, that in the story that we have, there is this confrontation over who has the power to forgive, and then in the story right after it, uh, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they're criticizing him for that, so there's a confrontation over that. Right after that, there's a question about when are you supposed to fast and not eat, and when are you supposed to feast, and Jesus' followers never seem to do that in the way that the religious leaders expect them to do it. And then after that, there's a conflict over the nature of the Sabbath. Is, is Sabbath for us or are we for the Sabbath? And then, and, and by the way, can you even help somebody or heal somebody on the Sabbath? And so you have conflict after conflict after conflict. And by the time you get to chapter three, verse six, after just these opening conflicts, it says this, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might, what? 
kill Jesus. We are not 10% into the gospel of Mark and already they want to kill him. And so you need to know that we preachers often do a great disservice to you by removing the conflict of the story and the drama of what is really happening in the text. And we let these little stories stand in isolation and we, and we tell them as little morals or virtues when what really Jesus is doing is confronting the spirit of his age with the reality of his good news. The core question in the gospel of Mark is a confrontational one. The core question is, who's in charge? If we go back to Mark chapter 1, the thing that repeats over and over a word, this word will be a golden thread throughout the whole book. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had what? Authority. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with what? Over and over again, it is all about authority. This week, who has the authority to forgive sins? Next week, when we're looking at the story of Jesus calming the storm, who is this who has the authority over the winds and the waves? Only Jesus. The following week, when we're going to see Jesus dealing with the powers and the principalities of evil and darkness, who has the authority to deal with this? Only Jesus. You need to, I need to make sure you understand the most basic of things. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus is the Messiah. In Greek, that term is Christos. You need to understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is not where he is from. When they want to say that, they say it's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ is a title. It's King Jesus. It's Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer. And you will never understand the gospel of Mark until you understand that he's come to take his rightful throne. Hopefully a part of what you've been experiencing as you've read and made the investment in reading the Old Testament, that as you turn into the pages of the New Testament, you will realize that, you will realize that, wait, I feel like I've seen this before or there's an echo here of something that's happened. And that's what's happening as you read the opening chapters of all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all written in kind of way to remind you of this historic event, which is the Exodus. Jesus is bringing in the new Exodus. And in doing so, by the way, isn't that a captivating piece of art? Like I just, I can't stop looking at it. Jesus is the new Moses ushering his people into salvation, ending the bondage and the exile. And the way that Moses dealt with the liberation of the people was through conflict and through confrontation, right? Do you remember the 10 plagues? Do you remember the back and forth? Don't miss this. Jesus is coming to confront the powers of the world, but he does so not with pestilence, not with plague, not with death, but with healing life 
and self-sacrifice. And so what's happening is, just as Pharaoh took on Moses and Yahweh took on the gods of Egypt with the question of, hey, who's in charge here? Amidst all the Roman authorities and the corruption and the religious leadership, Jesus is doing the very same thing with healing power in his wings. And so if you read the opening chapter of John, you see Jesus announce the good news, start to preach, call some disciples, and start his healing ministry. And you kind of get this impression that it's just like, okay, I get it. Jesus heals somebody. Jesus heals somebody. Jesus heals somebody. Jesus heals somebody else. And you're like, I kind of got it. And you get to Mark chapter 2, you get to the story, and they lower a paralyzed man. And with all of that effort, and you're like, look, I I already know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to heal him. That's not how it happens, is it? They lower this guy down in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him. What does he say? He says this. Son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine if you're one of the people that went all that effort to bring the paralyzed man to Jesus? Can you imagine in the longer version of the story that that person is still breathing hard and is like, Jesus, you know that's not why we're here, right? And Jesus is like, I know. Which leads to the first confrontation because Jesus isn't just being rude. Here's the first confrontation. Your greatest need is not your physical, emotional, economic, or social limitation. It is the condition of your soul and your alienation from God. Your greatest need is to be forgiven. You and I are the kind of people that, whether we recognize it or not, have this working understanding of our dissatisfaction and the way that our lives could get fixed. Somewhere you're probably able to fill in this formula if I could just have fill in the blank. If I could just have more money, if I could just have a more stable career, if I, if I could just have a job that connected me with more of my passion area, if, if I could just if I could just restore my relationship with my kid, or if I, if I could just get my marriage to be fixed right, or if I just had better friends, or if I just lived in a better neighborhood, or whatever it is that you fill in the blank. When you do that, you are on a treadmill of desire, of thinking that your circumstances and your situation is what will make you happy and save you. And Tim Keller says you're wrong. He puts it like this. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. Whether it's to succeed in our chosen field or have a certain relationship or even to get up and walk, we're saying, if I have that, I'll get my deepest wish and then everything will be okay. You're looking to that thing to save you from oblivion, from disillusionment, from mediocrity. You've made that wish into your savior. You would never use that term, of course, but that's what's happening. And if you never quite get it, you're angry, unhappy, and empty. But if you do get it, you ultimately feel more empty, more unhappy. You've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it into your Savior. And now that you finally have it, it's turned on you. 
My friends, we need better medical care. We need better safety and security. We need great jobs and for people to be lifted out of poverty. We need hungry bellies to be full. All of those things are important, but I'm also here to tell you that there is a deeper need, and that is our souls. And so whatever it is that you think you need, Jesus offers what you really need, which is to be forgiven, to be reconnected to God. Chuck and I stood here in this chancel just last week with a mostly full congregation for a beloved member of this Peachtree family who in five weeks went from diagnosis to pancreatic cancer to death. And because we're all shocked, we all show up and offer our support, our prayers. May I lovingly push you as your pastor. Her story is not any different than yours other than maybe in speed. The result will be the same. And yet what she knew And what people gave witness to was that a most important thing about her life was her relationship with God. And Jesus poses that confrontation. The second confrontation that Jesus poses here is the answer to that question, who can really forgive sins? And how does forgiveness actually happen? Many of you are probably quite familiar with this scene that I want to put up on the screen of two boys fighting over a toy. Let's imagine in this scenario that the boys are fighting, one boy gets the dinosaur, and then once he gets it, he takes it, and he starts banging the dinosaur on the head of his brother. The parent intervenes, tries to rectify the situation, and tries to help them to restore their relationship. And in restoring their relationship, somebody needs to be forgiven. The person who was banging the other one on the head can't say, you know what, I forgive myself. I feel fine. No, it's the person who was offended who needs to pay the price for the person to be forgiven. The religious leaders are scandalized because Jesus turns to this man and offers forgiveness. And they're like, wait a minute, nobody can do that except for God. And Jesus says, you're right. He says it like this, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This will be the first time that Jesus in the Gospel of Mark uses that title, it will not be the last. 
The last time he will use that title, Son of Man, will be when he is on trial, and it's put like this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and sitting and coming on the cloud of heaven. How is this image from Daniel 7 anything other than him putting all of the powers on notice? I will be on my throne. Because Jesus is in charge. So what do we do with that? I talked at the beginning of the message about my first day of orientation in graduate school. Just a couple of weeks ago, Kelly and I went to this place to take our oldest daughter, Danica, to orientation for school. So she had her orientation We had our orientation. At our orientation, they were teaching you things like, here's how you pay the bill, here's how you don't embarrass your children at drop-off day. They literally told the story of one mom who was on the blazing hot asphalt of a road holding on to her son's ankles while he's standing there like this trying to go to college and she's yelling no I can't do it they're like don't do this to your kids there's not enough therapy in school to do that to your kids but my favorite moment of orientation was the academic one because at the end of the day this is a school right I know if you went to Georgia Tech, you don't think so, but it is, it's a school. (laughs) And there was a professor from the school who gave us a 45 minute lecture on how everything is now going through the lens of active learning techniques. And so everything in the classroom is not just gonna be lecturing. In fact, that the 45 minute lecture is dead. And she taught us this by lecturing at us for 45 minutes. (laughs) I am dying. Kelly is like, shut up, you are going to get us on some sort of list. (laughs) You need to understand that if you're gonna hear the call of Jesus, if you're gonna enter into his lordship and his ministry, you need to understand that this is active learning. That maybe for you, you feel helpless and paralyzed and you need to receive the resurrection power of Jesus as he says to you, stand up, take up your mat and walk. Or maybe you need to be like the friends who are bringing, carrying, digging, making an opening and lowering. And when you do that, the text says, when Jesus saw their faith. This world desperately needs to see your faith, church. And so let's make this a true active learning as we get our orientation to the New Testament, that there is but one gospel, there is but one king, 
there is only one who is in charge. And the news that this world needs is that we are alienated from God and from one another and that we have to get to that soul level in order to be made whole. That we are paralyzed and yet we can walk again. And that the solution to so many of our problems is to have some really good friends. Jesus started his ministry by saying, follow me. This is active learning. It will take some conflict and confronting. And the question isn't whether you came and you heard this message. The question is, will you do something about it? And so let us pray. God, will you give us the courage to go forth from hearing this message to activate our faith, that our faith might be the kind of thing that would be visible to you and to others. Lord, in your resurrection power, continue to heal. In a world that wants to tear apart, help us to know that your authority turns the world upside down and you use your authority even to go to the cross. And so God, will you orient us today to what you were doing in your word and in your world? And will you enable us as your people to once again go on a new leg of the quest so that we might know that your authority is the only thing that gives us the power to be forgiven and freed. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.